welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Tom Lindley. With me is the professor, Alan Jameson. Hello, mate. Evening. Evening. It is an evening. Hello. We've been caught a little bit off guard by this episode. We have. It's been a busy month. Went fast. It's been a horrible month. That's the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a horrible month, but at least it's nearly over. This is true. The problem is we've only got about a day and a half to get this podcast recorded and put out, so uh, whoops. Yeah, sorry about that. I also feel I have to apologise from the last episode for declaring that we had fixed my audio problems. <laughs> when very clearly we had not. <laughs> Only to be horrified when I listened to it when it actually came out and realised it's the worst that it was ever been. So I think that was my fault. I think I might have accidentally been recording through my laptop whilst holding my head in a toilet bowl or something. I'm not quite sure how you get it that bad, but yeah. And all the time I was hearing glorious audio, which was just wafting off into the ether and not being recorded. <laughs> how do you make it that bad? I don't get I don't it. No, because even in the even in the glory days of me and you shouting at each other over Skype, it didn't sound that bad. <laughs> ah, and there's me going, "Oh yeah, finally fixed my audio." Hey, and not everyone that was everyone at home is going, "Really? <laughs> what did he say?" <laughs> Whatever you say, mate. Whatever you say. Yeah, good job, Al. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone really quick. It's been a busy old month. I turned forty, not having a, a breakdown at all. Did you? Yeah, midlife crisis time. You never told me that. Why didn't you tell me that? Well, you, you should know. Yeah, it's not my. <laughs> it's not my diary. You're in my diary. <laughs> oh, jeez, we're gonna have to do something about that. Well, I, I'm in no rush because, as you remember from your fortieth, it, it's a year. Yeah. It's a year long celebration. It doesn't matter about the day. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's the it's the top of the mountain. It's standing on Everest. Yeah, it just starts now. No, it's not because I've. <laughs> Because in about 367 days, it's all downhill from there on. <laughs> but just all I can say is enjoy the summer while you can. Okay. Because it'll be over as quick as this month has. My body is betraying me. And suddenly you realise you're only a day and a half away from releasing the podcast of life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I like it. I don't know what it means either, but who cares? We're, we're not even paid to talk. I was going to say, oh. I've just paid to say something, but I'm not. But we are. We are being paid, aren't we? Well, it's hard to put a value on this. Oh no, we are we are being paid. No, yes, we, Tom, we technically. I'm, I'm setting you up here. I'm setting you sorry, up. Sorry, that's that's what they call a segue in the yeah, industry. That was a beautiful segue as well, I might add. Thank you to all of our patrons. I'm genuinely surprised this is a way that we could keep the show going. We we looked at merch, we looked at sort of sponsorship, and I never guessed that people would be listening and like it to the point that they just they just donate to keep it going. So thank you so much. New patrons for this this month are James Fleming, Carney Levery. Christopher Rawlins and Shona Riddle. Sorry, my phone rang. It never rang. <laughs> so thank you so much to our patrons, people who join the Patreon. They get access to the Discord, and we've been having lots of fun over there. Uh, we went into into deep sea art fairly recently and we're sharing our, our favorite deep sea art it's the meme thread is a juggernaut i don't fully understand it because as i said i'm 40 uh, and everyone else is young so every day is girls night on the meme thread i don't fully understand it but apparently pictures of deep sea fish and then writing girls night girls night over it that's it that's it that's a meme <laughs> i'm really feeling my age i don't know what's going on yeah but i like it good i feel like that every day tom oh is this it is this just what it's like yeah i feel like i'm out of sync with the rest of the universe <laughs> slightly out of phase yeah oh anyway so in terms of supporting the show it's great that we have patrons and people are, are, are giving up their hard-earned money to hear us ramble every month but you know you could also just buy more aprons as well <laughs> no actually, don't buy the aprons the margin is terrible is it <laughs> Yeah, we love to see that the folk are out there in the aprons, but yeah. Okay, what we need to do is somebody, a friend of the show, needs to come up with a and give us, send us some advice on how to make money selling nothing but deep sea themed aprons. 
just go niche, just yeah. purely that. And we want to look at unit sales in the hundreds of thousands to millions. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we're looking for uh, someone who can create a deep sea themed apron business that we can claim all of the profits of without doing much work uh, with unit sales in the hundreds of thousands to, to millions. And that would be greatly appreciated. You can email us at uh, info at com. <laughs> Okay, you could do that. We are we are in the process of changing who makes our merch for one that should be a little bit friendlier, a little bit cheaper for people who are supporting and a larger wodge coming the way to keep this show going. Wodge. So thanks for that. Anyway, enough, enough talking about the pennies. We just do it for the love. We just do it for the love. So this month, just to update everyone on what's been going on, I did a Sea Week webinar thing which was really good fun actually but i also was on there with a few members of the squid squad including cat and she sent me a squid squad t-shirt so i now have a squid squad merch and i'm just wondering if it's a bit like when you stroke another dog when you're outside and then your dog like are the fish gonna know are they gonna smell that i've been fraternizing with other groups and it's they gotta reject me do the squid squad have an apron they don't they don't have an apron Ooh. they do have a design though it's only a matter of knowing the right people mm, all right <laughs> So I'll post a link to that um, webinar if anyone's interested in that. I weirdly ended up, I ended up a lot on the radio this month. I don't know quite why, but I was on was on a local commercial radio station with like some very Kiwi shock jocks because the, the listeners had asked, do fish drink water? And so I bored everyone on their commute in by telling them the actual answer. So that's probably ruined a lot of people's day. I didn't actually get to hear the piece, so I don't know how much they made fun of me. What is the answer, Tom? In short. In short, saltwater fish drink so they don't dry up and freshwater fish pee so they don't explode. There's more to it than that, but that's basically it. So saltwater fish drink. That'll do me. There you go. And uh, the BBC Three re-ran Dark Places, apparently, which was that um, winter solstice thing that I did in Newcastle with the panel of four people talking about dark places. It was a weird one. I didn't realize it had been aired again, but um, friend of the show, Alex, was out camping and then just heard me randomly on the radio. So yeah, apparently that's been aired again. I did another podcast this month. Actually, I think it may be last month. I can't remember. I did I did a Fish of the Week podcast for the United States Fisheries and Wildlife Service podcast. Hey, what was your fish? Uh, the Mariana Stillfish. Good, solid fish. Well, it was a little bit embarrassing because I wanted to talk about it. And this was when I was in quarantine on the way to when Mexico or whatever when I was away to the ship and uh, they obviously hadn't heard that we it's not the deepest fish anymore so it was a little bit awkward <laughs> so you immediately undercut it yeah there's a whole podcast of the second deepest fish in the world <laughs> it's oh. like yeah never mind we'll put a link to it in the show notes if I can find it oh cool Oh, that reminds me as well, actually. I, I'm i not sure. I don't think I spoke about this last one. I turn up in the New Species podcast as well. I did a little putting the deep sea in context bit for that one. So uh, we'll link back to that one as well. I think that's out now. God, we've been doing lots of stuff. No wonder the month has gone quick. <sighs> that's nothing, Tom. Nothing. What else have you been doing? I can't even begin to explain. <laughs> it's too much. It's one of those things, the higher up you get in academia, the more you spend your time doing stuff that you weren't trained in and nothing to do with your success in getting this far. Uh, That's what I find really frustrating sometimes. It's like some days you just can't believe the stuff you've had to deal with on the bigger picture stuff and all the meetings and the arguments and all the frictions that come with this job and all this. And at the end of the day, you just I just want to take photos of fish. That's why this is this is what caught me here. It wasn't my ability to negotiate or to delegate or to to be emotional support or international politics. Yeah, it's just I used to be quite good at taking pictures of fish, 
and I still quite like having a crack at it. You used to get pictures of fish that no one had got pictures of before. Yeah. And that's it. And now here we are. <laughs> yeah. And I was just dealing with all this stuff. I'm absolutely not trained. I mean, to be fair, I'm, I like to think I'm doing a good job of it, but it's exhausting and it's absolutely not what I want to spend my days doing. So it's time to uh, move to the North Pole. Huh? That, that seems quite remote. And just sit there all day taking pictures of weird fish. Yeah, no one can find you. Yeah. Sounds good. Do you have a soundtrack for this month? Because I, I have one, but we might not like it. I don't. I've stopped listening to music completely this month and last month. I've gone off music. That's ominous because you are a music guy. I know. I can't find anything I'm into at the moment. I might have to Google what happens when you start to hate all your favorite music. There's a good little summed up version, which is if you hate everyone, eat. If you feel like everyone hates you, sleep. And I wish it didn't work a lot. <laughs> it? It, it's it's pretty good to go by. What was it? If you hate everyone, eat. Yes. If you think everyone hates you, sleep. Yes. Really? Is, is life that simple? But okay. No, it turns out I am. Oh, okay. It's like a bumper sticker or something, was it? And you're like, oh, let's find the meaning of life on the back of a highlight. Yeah, kind of. A little, little live, laugh, love kind of <laughs> meme thing. Okay, so to cheer you up, and because it falls to me and my month's been weird as well, the soundtrack of this month is the theme song to Titipo the Little Train which is on Netflix, and my toddler has been... Well, actually, we've been arguing over it because I think the theme tune's a banger. I think it's pretty high energy. I quite like it. And now he's making fun of me for liking the theme song, so I'm being bullied by a three-year-old because I like a bit of kids' TV. So, yeah, that can be the soundtrack of the month. Titty Po, Little Train. What follows is a paid promotion on the Deep Sea Podcast. Best-selling author Susan Casey takes readers on a thrilling, ah, way. this is our mate Susan from way back in episode five. We met Susan while she was researching this book and now it's out and we turn up in it. So our mate Susan takes readers on a thrilling journey to the luminous world of the ocean's depths in her new book, The Underworld. Casey details a fascinating history of diving explorations and joins scientists and explorers as they voyage to the ocean floor, while sending an urgent message to protect the abyss from deep sea mining. The Underworld is available from Doubleday from wherever books are sold. Thanks for supporting the show, Susan. We're in the book. I'm, I'm in quite a lot of it. You are. You're all over the inserts, yeah. the pictures. I've got quite a lot of speaking parts in this one. No, it's a good book. We help with the fact-checking as well. Yeah, we've got a little preview, but it's nice to sort of see this come to fruition because, of course, that's how we met Susan. And you especially, Alan, because she joins some of the cruises. Yeah, no, it's nice to see some uh, accounts of the Five Deeps expedition being reported accurately. And Susan's account of how it really went down are really, really accurate and really interesting and funny. So good job, Susan. And on to some deep-sea news. Uh, the dive streaming has still been going nicely. Lots of lovely deep sea footage to watch and i think one of the the big ones was the the hydrothermal vent fields filmed by schmidt ocean institute and they did something that was a little bit interesting actually they they used the the rov sebastian and actually started turning over some of the volcanic crusts around the hydrothermal vents and uh, it turned out in the caves and tunnels below there was uh, there was a lot of life living there as well so there's sort of the the classic hydrothermal vent fauna that we're all familiar with the crabs and the giant tube worms and the shrimp but they found uh, a sort of equal amount of life living underneath with lots of interesting questions about you know are they able to to move around the vent field follow optimum conditions below the rock surface as well as uh, above it it's still really early results apparently they're going to publish something a bit more solid uh, soon I think the media are sort of grabbing hold of this and distorting it a little bit. What do they mean by caves and tunnels? I think they're at kind of the, the macro level. I think they, they literally mean just crevices. Just cracks. 
Yeah, yeah, not like journey to the center of the earth under there. Yeah, it's not like you drive from one to the other with a book full of larvae. <laughs> well, we need to see when the papers find out. But yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's this new sort of wave of science where when you're live streaming, when you're sort of sharing everything live, you kind of have to talk about it right away. You, you can't always wait for the analysis to come in. But if you're involved in that study and you'd like to talk about it on the Deep Sea Podcast, info at armedisoceanic.com. You can shout at us easy enough. We're all over the place. Previously, we were speaking about the octopus garden. So we're a load of brooding octopi were found uh, off the coast of California. And we'd we'd hypothesized, and as had the, the authors at the time, that maybe they're looking at the elevated water temperature as a way of hurrying along the maturation of their uh, eggs because they brood their eggs, they look after them. Looking at the scars on the body of some of the octopus, they know how long they stay brooding there. So they're, they're looking after them for years and years on end. Uh, but now the research is out and that has been confirmed. So it's looking like the hatching time of the eggs is being reduced from five plus years down to about two. So they're still brooding these eggs for like multiple years, but that's going to be a lot easier to survive. You know, if you had a job that was going to take six years, then you'd certainly approve of it taking two. So yeah, they're using these type of thermal nurseries to accelerate the, the maturation of their eggs and they're found all over the world. So this is probably something these deep sea cephalopods are using to uh, to reproduce, which again, I know I harped on about it last time, is interesting with the with the studies of the potential elevated temperature in the, the hadal snailfish as well. I do think they're brooding their eggs somewhere interesting. And I think that's going to turn up soon. You're going to find it, Alan. I need you to find it. Yeah, easy done. What's it worth? Maybe I have found it already. I'm just waiting for you to give me the big payout. I reckon $500 and I'll tell you where the snailfish brood their eggs. Right. I'm, I'm putting it out there. I think they they brood at a seep. I think they Do you? brood where it's a little bit warmer. And I think there's parental care as well. And so that's why some trenches have snailfish in it and some don't. Because some maybe don't have any chemosynthetic thermal, whatever cause. Again, it's all geological, so it's driving everything. Yeah, the habitat has to be there. Which is true, because if it wasn't any geology, there wouldn't be a planet, and everything would just be floating well, in this weird, that. spherical, smelly mass, and they would eventually just drift into space. It was just a little side story. The story itself is actually quite quite sad. It's about um, uh, midshipmen, which are noisy little deep-sea fish that come into the shallows to brood as an indicator of the warming seas causing mass die-offs and so that was all that was all very climate changing and depressing but the story has the most amazing little video of these fish fry and they're great they look they look like angry muppets they're brilliant we'll 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 find some way of sharing it maybe we'll have to ask permission or we'll just link to the article but yeah it's just i kept watching it over and over again and then of course the the patreon discord meme thread turned that into girls night again so yeah it's worth it just for that video that sort of cheered me up after the quite depressing article We've got a new genus of amphipods. Just when you thought you needed more amphipods, there's more amphipods. Researchers in Japan have recently established a new genus of amphipod. Here we go. Capropodosaurus? Yeah. You ever had a Capropodosaurus before? Well, it's a really, <laughs> it's a recently described uh, new genus of amphipods. Yeah. It's worth looking at them, actually. There's two new species. The first one's called Capropodosaurus Kagamaru. Oh, these are great names. Yeah. Very Japanese as well. Yeah, yeah, proper Japanese names. So they were collected from about 800 meters deep off the east coast of Japan, and it's worth having a look at them because they are they are gnarly beasts. Yeah. It's amazing how varied the amphipods are. I mean, their most distinguishing feature is two massive fists. <laughs> <laughs> the claws on the front. Yeah, like comedy boxing gloves. 
yeah, like beautiful in a really horrific kind of way. But once you're over that, even the body is weird because yeah. the, the amphipods we usually deal with, they're quite consistent little carapaces, but that, that whole body is wild. It's one of those animals that looks like it was part of a bigger animal and you've taken away all the extremities and then deleted the main body and put all the extremities back together again. <laughs> it's just limbs. Yeah, it's just all the <laughs> limbs and antenna all just cobbled together into one thing. Yeah, oh, lovely. Carapodosaurus, Takamaru. <laughs> <laughs> Latin is hard, and anyone who pretends it isn't is lying. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'll tell you what is weird because it is a bit of a dead language. If you move to the other end of the planet, even the familiar names, everyone says them different. I'm not sure I'm right anymore. Well, it's like uh, Diplodocus and Diplodocus. I was always growing up being told it was Diplodocus, and it's only until I had children myself that it's clearly become Diplodocus, and maybe it always was. I don't know. Maybe my mum just lied to me. It's not a diplodocus, never has been. I don't know. I'm hanging out with all these taxonomists and just nodding along. It's just like, whoa, it's okay. It's said that way. Do they listen to this podcast and now you've confessed that you're a complete fraud? Oh, they know, they know. They know now. It's been a couple of months. No, they know I'm, I'm useless. Ah, okay. <laughs> Since moving down here, I've been exposed to lots of interesting people and I've been learning a great deal from them. And one of those people who I've been assaulting with my friendship has given me a wider appreciation to the the mollusks beyond the the squids and octopi the the keplopods but basically beyond the things beyond the snails pretending to be fish i've got a newfound appreciation for the for the wider groups so let's have a chat with kerry walton I'm joined by Kerry Walton, malacologist and invertebrate curator here at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa. So I didn't have a solid plan for the interview. I'm sure that's what you want to hear when you go in. But I hoped I had at least a broad grasp over habitat types and functional groups and what's going on out there. But you will regularly just mention offhand something that I had absolutely no idea about. You showed me a snail yesterday with a bivalve shell. So a snail that opens like a muscle. And I wasn't ready for that. It could all be an elaborate ruse. You could all just sort of create these things and then show me just as like a gang stalking manipulation thing. But regularly you'll bring up something that I've never even considered. So I wanted to have a little chat about the wider mollusk group. We've done squids and octopuses and they, I'd say, are the, the charismatic megafauna, that, that cursed term. But there is a lot of unsung groups within mollusks. So I wanted to broaden the horizon a little bit. So thanks for coming on and having a chat. Thanks for having me. So we were chatting a little bit yesterday about why it is so important to have a, a grasp of the molluscan diversity. And you were giving me a few examples of the wider things you can tell just from having a decent understanding of the mollusk component to, say, a habitat or adjacent habitats. Yeah, it's, it's not unique to mollusks, but mollusks are probably the best example where you can use very high level of knowledge of one group to extrapolate and answer a bigger picture questions about ecosystem form and function and diversity. Mollusks have a couple of advantages. For one, they're one of the largest animal groups there is, second only to the arthropods, which eat insects, crustaceans. And we've got between 200 and 300,000 living mollusk species, and the majority of those, um, roughly 90%, produce a shell, which has a relatively high preservation potential. And what that means is you can get um, presence-absence data for mollusks which you couldn't for the majority of soft-bodied organisms. And remarkably, of the 
roughly four and a half thousand living species we have in New Zealand, the majority have never been seen alive or collected alive. We believe, we, we assume they're extinct on the basis of um, known rates of shell degradation, but we collect their shells from death assemblages by dredging at the base of seamounts or canyons, for example, or for terrestrial species by sieving leaf litter and getting the small arboreal snails out of it that way. So it's a combination of like this really high diversity and the parts of them that we can identify to sort of quite high level, like species level, preserve really well. Yeah. So high diversity, high preservation potential, the fact they produce a shell is very advantageous. And they are, there are some groups which are very much the exception, but most mollusk species can be identifiable with a degree of confidence by an expert to species level from the shell alone. You don't need to dissect the anatomy, you don't need to sequence them. And you were telling me that about how well they preserve, that they sort of do a, a self-buffering thing once they've uh, decomposed to a certain level, and then you were talking about finding what would be a fossil any, any other time. It, it sort of looks like it died yesterday. They just preserve incredibly well. There was a study published a few years ago that was carbon dating what looked like fresh shells on a beach. And while the majority were fresh in the sense of weeks to months old some of them were thousands of years old and the difference was barely perceptible with the naked eye so we often make this distinction between recent and fossil and people will fight you over those terms especially if you throw subfossil into the mix great way to annoy a few paleontologists but um, fossilization is a process of mineral replacement shells are minerals and the rate of mineral replacement in which minerals actually get replaced is um, contextual on the depositional setting what the sediment contains different pH values and so on. So what we have if you've got a carbonate rich deposit which might be a bryozoan bed or a shell bed where the majority of the sand or mud has a high carbonate content that self buffers against acidic effect of the seawater and it means those shells can remain looking extremely fresh for perhaps 10,000 years or more and conversely if you have suboptimal conditions, a mud that has a low carbonate content, for example, you can have a living mollusk that hasn't even bothered to die yet that's already got a partially fossilised <laughs> shell. It's lived long enough to start fossilising. <laughs> yeah, effectively, yes. Or at least a highly eroded shell is more common for deeper water taxa. Oh, that's cool. And they can they can also pass through sort of predator digestive tracts as well. Like even, even fish poop can still have some recognisable material in. Yeah, going through fish guts is one of the easiest ways to collect uh, deep sea mollusks especially when they're um, from a hard bottom habitat that would be difficult to sample otherwise yeah a lot of the early deep sea mollusk collecting um, in particular by shell collectors as well is done by going through fish guts and they're in a remarkable state of preservation often the shells will pass through completely intact for some species it's hypothesized that the animal will pass through living where they can seal the shell off completely with their opercula and that's one potential means of dispersal for some of these species generally the deeper you go the, the fish will be more inclined to eat whatever they encounter so most deep sea fish that are frequently in contact with the bottom will nibble away at a mollusk where visible anything you stick out gets nibbled on so yeah they're quite good good sampling tools like a lot of our really good antarctic stuff is thrown up by ice fish <laughs> things we never catch in the nets they vomit up so they do the sampling for us and you were saying how this is this is really handy for maybe habitats that are really difficult to sample like rocky stony habitats where we, we couldn't pull a dredge the presence of these shells sort of rolling downhill and in the guts of fish that are living in the area indicates that this habitat is present even if we we can't sample it directly 
absolutely. Um, the, the problem with relying on a collection built from ex-fish gut material is it's often poorly localised. You might have a region if you're lucky, but that's about it. But um, one of the big advantages of so many mollusks passing through fish is that it means at the bottom of seamounts that are below scuba depth hard structure habitats that are quite difficult to sample. You risk losing a lot of gear and you risk damaging a lot of probably sensitive coral habitats, so you don't want to go in recklessly to those. By sampling around the base of seamounts or in the bottom of submarine canyons, you get all of these shells that have accumulated over centuries or millennia, potentially, depending on the sediment type, um, from higher up on those canyon walls. And by looking at those shells, we can identify certain characteristics. As much as a third, perhaps more, of mollusks are obligate either parasites or in a commensal relationship with certain corals, sponges, sea cucumbers. So we can, by having a good understanding of the um, ecology of some of these species, by having good natural history collections to more confidently say, this, this genus feeds only on that genus, or lives between this depth range and that depth range. We can start to reconstruct the unsampled habitats above by looking at this death assemblage in the bottom of the seamount or canyon. Cool. And, and knowing the sort of life histories as well, I, I'm not sure if you touched on that, but whether they have sort of direct development and therefore you know that they're not they're not very far from where they, you know, apple didn't fall far from the tree versus these things that get distributed in the currents and the plankton. And by, by knowing that, you can sort of back calculate where this population has come from. That's sometimes true, but that also creates a lot of traps as well. For deep sea species, especially those with a unique habitat, such as a hydrothermal vent, methane seep, organic fall, or very particular requirements where those suitable habitats for those species are broadly dispersed or sparsely distributed, they, they therefore need to transition or transit between those habitats in order to persist long term. So they tend to have quite long-lived larvae. Most vent species have very long-lived larvae, for example. What that can also mean is that at any given site, you have technically a population of one species, but where it had larval origins from two distinct and quite distant populations, so you can get what appear to be two morphotypes or two lineages converging at one point, and you can potentially consistently separate the two forms and mislead yourself into thinking that you've got more taxa than you actually do. Ah, there are traps as well. There are traps as well. <laughs> Where isn't there? Well, it gives you more work to do. It would be boring if it was easy. Everyone would have done it by now. Exactly. It's, it's a total tangent on the, on the deep sea element, but I just thought it was fascinating. You were about this sort of direct development and not straying very far. You were telling me about some of the land snails here in New Zealand. A species just exists under one tree and they never really move. <laughs> land snails are already the brunt of quite fair jokes about their mobility, but it's the herbivorous ones that often take that to the next level. In, in New Zealand, a lot of our species have slow metabolisms. They live quite long. Some of our larger land snails can live for several decades. And the herbivorous ones, if they're in suitable habitat underneath a food tree, they don't move at all. Mark recapture studies have comedically failed to detect movement over years <laughs> for some of these species. And while we can't rule out limited movement and then homing behavior, for the most part, the leaves that they eat fall on them and they eat the leaves. And you've got to almost wonder whether the rate of leaf consumption has to fairly exactly equal the rate of leaf falling. So they don't get smothered or starved. <laughs> that would be about the least ceremonious possible end, although perhaps that might be a desired way to go, I don't know. 
oh. it, it feels like those people that you get well into old age and have never gone on holiday anywhere. It's like, why would I go anywhere? It's the best thing here. Which is fair enough if your food is just falling on you from the sky and that's all you've ever known. <laughs> Perhaps that's the snail equivalent of death by chocolate. Yeah, okay. The okay. thoughts it's of the Garden of Eden remain elusive to us. <laughs> but it makes them incredibly vulnerable. It's a worry. It does, yes. A lot of the larger snails are popular with shell collectors. They're popular with a lot of the introduced predators that we have. Um, rats, mice, possums, pigs. And on top of that, we've got browsing by ungulates, goats and deer, which is disturbing the litter and removing a lot of the undergrowth, which results in a drier forest or an easier forest for the predators to forage in. So coupling all of that with climate change, that's exacerbating uh, the quite serious conservation status of many of these larger terrestrial mollusks. Yeah, it's such a perfect balance. It doesn't take much to nudge that off course. Sorry for the tangent, but I just I, you told me about that and I found that amazing. So to... to get into the sort of deep sea realm i feel like the wider mollusks beyond the the squids and octopus beyond the the cephalopods seem to get missed out so i wanted to give them a chance to to sort of take the spotlight really and there was a few you mentioned that were totally new to me some of the real obligate ones on whale carcasses and large carcasses that fall to the seabed and we we've even had an episode on this i have supposedly advised about making educational content around these things and i had no idea these even existed you found some incredibly niche whale fall mollusks to say the non-cephalopod mollusks are missing out sounds like a very fish biologist perspective. <laughs> no, I feel they need to be they need to be championed. They need to be in the public knowledge. <laughs> They're often talked about in different circles. Mm. But the plushies aren't quite as comfortable. They, they tend to be spiky. Or, or I, was, I famously had a um, plastic 747 jet instead of a teddy bear when I was a kid and I'd wake up with a wing impression on my cheek every morning and look ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe that's the that's early yeah. signs your child might become a mollicologist. A fondness for hard, pointy things. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. So, yeah, what, what were some of these, like, really specialised whalefall mollusks? The core of a whalefall community often comes down after you've had the initial successive cycles of the detritivores feeding on the, the flesh itself. You have bacterial action producing hydrogen sulphide as the bones decay. And the bones of cetaceans are much more oil-rich than the bones of equivalently-sized fish. Well, equivalently-sized bones, perhaps the fish might not be the same size. So they produce a lot more hydrogen sulphide, so you end up with these quite unique communities that have some semblance, certainly ecologically, with hydrothermal vent and methane seep communities. And at family and sometimes genus level, you get a lot of the same species. There are very few species that are actually in common between those different habitat types. At the core, from a mollusk perspective, or at least the most visible faunal element of these whale falls, would be the little bathymodioline mussels, of which there's a variety of genera. And there have been a few projects that said, oh, we, we think we've got a couple of things here, we'll do a bit of sequencing, and after reaching half a dozen... How hard can it be? Half a dozen <laughs> species from eight samples, they go, oh, let's, let's go do something else. It's a nice day, isn't it? <laughs> So we've, we've got a considerable diversity of small mussel species that are unique to whalefall environments here in the South Pacific, and they are found throughout the world as well. And these mussels are closely related to the hydrothermal vent giant mussels. They've got bacteria that they farm in their gills, which metabolise sugars from the hydrogen sulphide, and the mussels all absorb that sugar as their main form of nutrition. But we have a whole bunch of more easily overlooked invertebrates and mollusks in particular. There are 
dozens of limpid species that are unique to organic falls and bones, squid beaks that are rotting, skate egg cases that are rotting. And these are these are specialists to each one of these. Yep. And then one that we, my colleague um, Bruce Marshall and I named um, a couple of years ago here at Tapapa was one we only discovered relatively recently that is unique to decaying baleen. And as far as I'm aware, that's the only species that has that unique habitat. And it's a it's a bit of a strange shape too. Limpets haven't got a huge degree of flexibility in what shape they can be, perhaps. It's a cone, but it's a cone that sits on top of a cylinder. And one of the neat things about that is if you look at the um, gap between the different scoots of this baleen, these limpets precisely compartmentalise <laughs> that gap. The cylinder height is roughly half of the width of the gap. So you can have limpets on either side of the scoot and their little cones can interlock in the middle. So they're remarkably efficient at occupying almost all of the exposed surface of this decaying baleen. So this is the this is the baleen, the filter feeding whales, the huge hair-like filters that sort of they have instead of teeth. The hair-like is, is a key point too because it um, chemically is hair-like. It's keratin. It's a remarkably inert, long protein chain substance. It's that anything derives nutrition from it at all was <laughs> quite a surprise. Let alone dedicate your life to it. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I, I wouldn't want to guess the exact mechanisms of how it does so. With the bone-eating worms, there was a theory that they had evolved, and actually we've seen we've seen the scars that they'd evolved in sort of giant marine reptiles. And then when the whales came along, they sort of made that jump. But keratin in the deep sea seems very specific. So would these be a more recent sort of development? And where would they have come from? What were they eating before there was whales? I love that question, and I've got no idea. <laughs> There would have been keratin on ancient turtle carapaces, so there would have been ah. some analogous structures that they might have transitioned from, but what that might be, I couldn't tell you. For most of these species, they're small mussels, they're small limpets. We have extensive fossil records of small mussels and limpets, but confidently equating this one as the common ancestor or direct descendant of that one is bold, let me say, <laughs> given the considerable diversity of these groups and indeed how much molecular tools have revised how we view their relationships and the um, rate at which they diversified in more recent years. You have a whole five chemosymbiotic bivalve families, of which the mussels are one, where they don't live necessarily directly attached to the bones themselves, which the mussels do. They'll often live in the um, organically enriched sediments adjacent to these falls. And one of them that I worked on a few years ago, the Solomayids, ancestral group, I don't like calling them ancient, or they're living dinosaurs. They've evolved just as long as everything else, and everything that's alive is living. So it's these uh, misnomers that tend to trigger me. <laughs> but remarkably... Similar fossils can be found as far back as the Jurassic, tens of many tens of millions of years ago. And you could be mistaken for thinking they're conspecific, the, the levels of similarity are remarkable. But what you want to keep in mind is the habitat is 30 centimetres deep in mud. Mud hasn't changed very much. There isn't mud too. Worms have looked like worms for hundreds of <laughs> millions of years because a worm is a very good shape to be if you live like a worm. And cylindrical and shiny and a bit simple is a great shape to be if you live deep in mud. You don't have to impress anybody. You, don't, you just squirt the water occasionally and you, that's your life sorted. But one of the things I do love about these groups, you get different species at hydrothermal vents, at methane seeps, at some of these organic falls. But there's one, I think it's in Japan, that was found in a polluted estuary near a wig factory. 
and there is a thick layer of human hair no. in the cesspool. <laughs> and this has created an anaerobic, anoxic, chemosymbiotic environment. So digging through the sediments in some of these polluted estuaries, you see these clams that are as happy as Larry, with the assumption <laughs> that Larry is relatively happy. But you didn't say happy as a clam. I didn't, no. <laughs> and yeah, I regret just... it. <laughs> that is weird. That is so weird. And, and these are... Well, I guess not even deeper because you get anoxic conditions in, in lots of places, but, but living on human wig hair is particularly weird. I like that a lot. They're among the dominant animals in the fjords south of New Zealand. And the reason for that, if you've ever tried dredging in the fjords, you'll know it's quite unpleasant because these are very steep-sided, mountainous areas that drop down to about 300, 400 metres quite rapidly. And in the base of these fjords, you just have a crisscross lattice of entire trees that are probably not feeling too fresh overlain on mud so it's very hard to sample you get a, a long straight trunk going into your dredge or whatever <laughs> you're sampling with and it doesn't matter how big your boat is that's not coming to the surface so most of the samples we have were taken by grabs which are useful for certain types of questions i usually prefer larger samples i'm interested in the in getting some of those rarer species and greater sample sizes but what we see is that these chemosymbiotic species are in particularly high abundance, and there's three of them that co-occur in the Solomyidae family. There's other families present there too, and they form the basis of the food chain. It's the majority of the food of many of the main fishery species, like blue cod, that we have in the fjords as well. So it's an unusual example where a chemosymbiotic ecosystem directly sustains a inshore ecosystem yeah, and indeed a major fishery. It's not some far-off deep-sea thing. It's, a, it's literally coastal and a fishery. You could throw a rock out off the top of one of these mountains and it'll land in hundreds of metres in places. I need to play more in Fjordland. I'm looking forward to getting out there. And so there's fundamental similarities in all these chemosynthetic habitats. So we see not the same species, but similar genera and, and families between the hydrothermal vents and the, say, the whale falls or other, other reducing environments. Are there any unique adaptations to the vents in particular. I know you've done quite a bit of work on vents. A lot of my work on vents has been trying to identify these often very limited or eroded samples. It's a, a toxic environment, it's a deep sea environment, and it's a hard to sample environment. So we've got one or two shells collected by an ROV or a submersible, and they all look the same. The, the main thing you need to overcome is the ephemeral nature of venting. Vent systems will go through periods of activity and inactivity, and then the nature of the venting might change as well, the temperature or the mineral content. So if you're a sessile benthic invertebrate, you can't move, you get what you're given, and your vent says, oh, I'm not going to do anything this week, I'm taking a break, you're not going to be around for very long. So one of the key adaptations is the long-lived larvae to allow, through these venting systems, persistence of taxa, where at any individual site might be a little bit vulnerable to some of the fluid dynamics of the vent itself. Uh, one of the most, I don't know if charismatic megafauna is appropriate, but one of the more popularised groups are the chainmail snail or scaly foot gastropod. Um, I prefer the form of it, no one uses it. It's a group we unfortunately don't have in New Zealand. They grow to about three or four centimetres and with, with the vents you get an extreme amount of heavy metals and various other things that are often toxic to life 
coming out of the water. And when you're looking at a black smoker or a white smoker, those are precipitates that are in liquid state when under pressure in the crust itself. But as they emerge and that pressure and temperature is released, they condense and that's how we get these chimneys forming of heavy metals and some of the lighter elements generally form the clouds of the black and white smokers, which differ in what those elements actually happen to be. So much as the mangrove tree has to evolve a way to remove salt when it's in a high salt environment, that's um, excessively salty for healthy life. In some of these vent environments, the taxa have to evolve a manner of getting rid of some of the heavy metals that they ingest incidentally as part of their diet. And the chainmail snail does this by secreting literal metal scales that line its foot, and it resembles dragon skin. I think they're remarkable. They're very goth. They're, and there's colour variations as well. There's like reds and blacks, and they're very cool looking. There's a pale one, and they, they would be a unremarkable brown, but they often have other precipitates forming on them. So a lot of the colours we see of some of these deep sea mollusks, particularly in these unique environments, are a result of um, subsequent deposition of precipitates. And that's true for freshwater species in particular as well, where a lot of them appear to be black, and that's manganese or other minerals that have accumulated on the surface of the shell naturally, but not through any conscious process of the shell itself or metabolism of the shell itself. Oh. Could they be the sort of starting nucleus of a lot of manganese nodules? Could there be a tiny little shell in the middle of a lot of those? I suspect so, but I don't know if I want to go public saying that because I don't know. <laughs> I think that's exactly what's going on here. Because oh, there's been like megalodon teeth and things like that. I, don't, I can't filter signal from noise when it comes to hypey things like that. But if they're precipitating manganese in life, then surely after a few hundred years... Also wanted to touch upon the pelagics, because we, me and Alan especially, particularly like stuff on the bottom, mainly because you can send gear and not miss. But there is the pteropods and a few other pelagic mollusks as well, isn't there? Yes. Um, I don't want to be quoted as saying I'm a bottom man myself, <laughs> but separate to the cephalopods, we've got a couple of different gastropod groups that are pelagic. Well, we've got quite a few, actually. We've got the violet snails, Janthina, which are these extremely vivid purple or violet gastropods. They can grow up to about three centimetres, and they float on the surface by forming bubble rafts. And they've actually got counter shading, where the largest species, Janthina janthina, has a pale spire, which is the part that points down. So when viewed from the bottom, it resembles the sunlight and is not that visible to a would-be predator. Oh, it actually looks like a sunbeam. And these guys float on the surface and they hunt Portuguese man-of-war, quote-unquote jellyfish. Ah, doing a service. So there's, there's some unique species like that. We've got pelagic nudibranchs. We've got a couple of other very obscure pelagic groups. Perhaps the most ecologically important would be the pteropods, or sea butterflies, which are abundant and largely unknown to most people because they seldom wash up. Um, not all of them produce shells, but most of them do, and they'll be in the order of... A couple of millimetres up to the largest would be just shy of two centimetres in its shell. The animal itself might be twice that size. And just with many of the other zooplankton, they'll float up and down according to what time of day it is. And they form a substantial proportion of the diet for a very large amount of pelagic fish species. Yeah, our sunfish from a couple of months ago was full of them. And you, you helped ID those. Yeah, that was one of the most exciting recent discoveries, I'm told. Um, sunfish seldom have much in their guts, whether that's due to a fast metabolism or fish biologists, which do not include myself, aren't, aren't sure. But we recently received a suite of relatively small sunfish, one of which had a full 
Asgard, and we were pleasantly surprised to see three pteropod and one atlantid species, four pelagic gastropod species, within the gut, which first answered the question of what do they eat, <laughs> and quite conclusively. It's well worth having a look. We'll put some links in the show notes because they're beautiful, actually. The the pteropods are really, really beautiful. There's one particularly colourful one with a yellow head. It's the one that always shows up on Google Images. It's got a yellow head and a sort of purpley wings. One of the problems with a lot of these species that they can be semi-iridescent. So the question of what colour is them could be <laughs> counter-question of what colour would you like it to be. <laughs> do we use polarised light? What lens do we use? How do we correct for colour dispersal or dispersion? As part of that water? disappearing in the open water that is sort of... And they tend to be photographed at night when they come to the surface if you're blue water diving or black water diving. Is that name still valid? I heard that pteropod disappeared for a while. Is it back? Is that still the correct term? It's the most commonly and widely used. <laughs> what a polite way of saying no. <laughs> it, it has a strict biological sense in that it refers to the group pteropoda, but generally I would use it for many of those pelagic groups. Yeah, yeah, I think it's valid. Yeah, that's okay. Oh, okay, it's important. I think I think it I should quickly check worms in yeah. between confidently stating to <laughs> how many people listen to this again. Well, there's both of our mums, and my wife sometimes listens, but she's quite far behind. They won't check you. They won't check you. Getting on to the really deep stuff. So long beyond when the fish give up, we're getting mollusks right to the bottom of the deep trenches, and I was always surprised that how well they're sort of protonaceous there isn't the shell feels like a soft membrane rather than a, a a classic sort of gastropod snail shell what's what's going on down there that is probably in large a part of the average mineral composition of the sediment in which these animals are living some of the vent species alviniconca is a great example it's a looks like a garden snail it's about that size and shape except it's almost entirely the um chitinous exoskeleton so most shells are comprised of two main layers um shell biologists be screaming there's dozens of different layers or sublayers, and that's completely true but for simplicity's sake there's a, a carbonate layer which is the inside or what you might think of as the shell itself and then you've got a, what is usually a thinner outer layer which is often translucent or transparent often green or brown which is chitinous a similar structure to hair or fingernails. And that that, that often brings the colour in some of the bivalves. See, so sunset shells and so on, often it's the outer layer that gives a lot of the colour and the, the shell itself is pale. Buff is the term we often use to describe <laughs> the colour of many of these bivalves. And according to needs or selective pressures, the mollusk can only work with what it has. If you haven't got much carbonate, in the sediment, you can't produce a thick carbonate shell, and then you've got to counterbalance that with the need for a thick shell according to rates of predation or who's who the predators actually are. Many of the predators can drill holes quite comfortably through shells, almost regardless of their thickness. So one of the main predators, or some of the main predators in the deep sea would be octopuses, murex snails, and moon snails, and all three of those can drill holes through shells. Is there a structural element to the shell, or without a sort of predation pressure can they can they be quite soft yes a, a lot of shelled oh, species from what are generally shelled groups have lost their shell altogether so we've got some internal parasites that live inside sea cucumbers which are of groups where every other member of those groups have a fairly normal perfectly thick for their size shell but where they live inside a sea cucumber they're not worrying about predation and those shells have evolved away so the shell is not a strict requirement for many taxa or environments, it is. But again, that comes down to the 
selective pressures and what minerals are available in the first place for evolution to work with. Okay, okay, but it's not it's not providing sort of any bodily structural stuff. It is about pushing through sediment or defending from predation. And it is in the species in which it is, but shells are not inherently necessary for huh. mollusks for structure. So for bivalves that have shells, if you took away the shell, it's going to flop around and die. It's necessary, but you've got some groups where the animal fully envelops the shell and the shell has reduced, maybe not disappeared entirely, but it no longer serves the same function that it used to have. We talk about slugs and snails, but a surprising number of slugs, including the common garden slug found throughout the world, um, native to Europe and the Mediterranean, that actually has a shell. It's got a tiny white shell where the slug itself might be two, three centimetres and the shell might be three or four millimeters long i did not know that your most common slugs will often have a little shell inside them and you could argue whether that's actually serving a structural function at all whether it's just left over but not such a burden that evolution has sought to get rid of it within just a few generations it could be mineral storage even and then we've got um, semi-slugs which are particularly common on land but we have marine ones as well where there remains a visible external shell but it is so reduced that the animal or the soft parts there's no satisfying term for that the shell is part (laughs) of the animal in the same way that your skeleton is part of the human animal so to say the shell versus the animal is distressing but soft parts (laughs) is also an awkward workaround that we often use it's an unsatisfactory workaround when i'm being facetious i say the gooey bits because they're often discarded by people who are wanting convenience and display rather than some of the scientific value that the whole animal can collectively provide us I can throw the gooey bits away later, but I can't bring them back. That's true. One thing we like to do is try and push against the annoying deep sea tropes, but I reckon I can throw it even broader. Is there anything you'd like to set the record straight on? Is there anything that keeps getting propagated? Quite a few, but I don't want to name names. (laughs) One that that has come up in, in regular conversation is that people keep flipping snails in Photoshop because the, the world looks better going the other way or it fits nicer into their composition. I don't want to say that that gets me every time in case people I don't like are listening to this, but <laughs> it is remarkable <laughs> how often you're looking at a photo of a snail and the shell coils in the wrong direction. And it makes you realise we with birds or other animals or plants that don't have that same chirality How often are these photos artistically or inadvertently flipped by the copy editor or whoever it is that happened to do saying, oh, I think it'd look better going in that direction. (laughs) Or the lighting, this this would flow nice with the other image I wanted to put on the page. So the vast majority of coiled gastropod shells coil in a certain direction. And there are very rare exceptions where through a a genetic mishap, they might coil in the wrong direction. And it's it's an absolute minority, a a couple of percent at most of species that naturally normally coil in, in the sinistral, in the other direction. And there are a few a few species in the examples that come to mind are terrestrial, unfortunately, where you've got both occurring in relatively high frequency, both sinistrally and dextrally coiled snails within a conspecific population. And there was an example, I think it's from Europe, where a snail is often eaten by a snake. The main predator is a snail-eating snake. Herpetologists are very creative. <laughs> Not all. It says exactly what it does on the tin. <laughs> True to label. <laughs> it's, it's helpful. If they, if they just had any other name, that would be unhelpful for me. So I, I take that back. Thank you, <laughs> snake people. But where the snakes would have a asymmetrical jaw where they could more easily feed on snails that coil in a certain direction, we create 
selection for snails that coil in the un the less abundant direction. So you could call it diversifying selection or stabilizing selection of, of the snake's core top. Yeah, is there a snake that... There's probably one that got teased by his mates as a youngster, <laughs> but now he gets more snails and he's bigger than the others. And like, oh, strange direction Jim is... Yeah. Doing, doing old, pretty well. Old wonky Jim is doing quite well for himself. <laughs> yeah, it's just a constant arms race. But yeah, I've been I've been walking around with you and seeing it just sort of tricky. It's like that, that snail's on backwards. That snail's that snail's been flipped. <laughs> it's everywhere. And when, when you know <laughs> you look for it. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that one up though. That would be probably the best example yeah. of things that irk me. I think that's a good keep keep an eye on the snails, folks. They're off they're often on backwards. Thanks so much for having a chat. I know you were reluctant, but thank you. It was uh, it was a really good chat. You regularly bring up things that I have no idea about, so I just wanted to capture some of them. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We got uh, Tales from the High Sea, which I quite liked. So I've been chatting with Becca, a fisheries observer, and the conversation came up of superstition and mariners' superstitions, which are not to be taken lightly and some of them are pretty strange so i got her to record a quick little segment for us about what she's been finding out there hey uh, my name is becca nichols and i am currently working as a scientific fisheries observer in the south atlantic my job is to board the various fishing vessels in our zone to collect biological data on target and bycatch species for use in the stock assessments and management of the fishery Something I found absolutely fascinating working at sea is the different superstitions of the crew. The majority of the vessels I work on are Spanish or Spanish-run, with most of the officers being Galician, but the crew are from a multitude of countries. As the sayings go, below 40 degrees south there is no law, below 50 degrees south there is no god. The roaring 40s, the ferocious 50s, and the screaming 60s. These phrases describe the winds that batter the southern oceans that make conditions at sea a dangerous place to work. And so you can see why a little hope from a superstition can stick in such remote and wild locations. One of the most common I've found on these vessels is garlic on the bridge. I've been told by the officers that they ward off bad omens and sea witches. Women are also often seen as bad omens on these vessels. I am often the only scientist and the only woman on board when I work. I am always treated well and with respect when I'm on board, but that doesn't stop the superstition. My first four vessels happened to have medical evacuations, none of which did I have any interaction with, <laughs> but according to them, I was the reason. My third vessel was the patrol vessel, a 35-year-old converted jigger, dropping me off at my next deployment. And the second engineer suddenly collapsed and we had to turn around to get him help. After I was dropped off the next day, the radar went kaput. Upon my next pickup, I was informed I broke the second engineer and the radar. This has continued to be a running joke with the PV crew. On my fourth vessel, they were so superstitious of me after a guy sliced his finger and was evacuated that they put garlic in my room and under my bed. On my fifth vessel, we were getting bad catches on the first two days, and the captain expressed to me that I was a bad omen. We subsequently had a week of catches so large that they had to cut the net to release some of the catch to get the net on board every day. The captain apologised and said I wasn't a bad omen after that, though I think he still thought I was a sea witch. I've had no issues since, on my numerous vessels to date, but it's still fun hearing the different superstitions followed in each one. One of the older vessels even had bright red women's underwear on the bridge. When I asked why, they said this was also for good luck. Some other common superstitions are not allowed to whistle, as you'll call bad winds. Umbrellas are forbidden on board, as it is believed you are tempting the fate of the bad weather. 
If you tear the page off a calendar, you're going to go home a month later than planned, as the calendar must be folded instead. It's bad luck to embark or marry on a Tuesday, Martes. Mars being the god of war, it is understood that embarking on a Tuesday would mean you'd meet war. And you should never say the word church on a vessel. You should say bell house. Or the word priest. You should say he who wears a skirt. What kind of superstitions have you guys come across? Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Best wishes and fishes. And she followed up, actually. Yeah, we, we kept chatting after she recorded that. Like We'd, we'd heard before the, the idea that women are bad luck on boats, but I, I didn't realise that's fairly recent. Mm. And apparently one of the older captains were telling her that actually women used to be good luck on boats. <laughs> and the lovely little gem that I've, they used to get women to urinate on the new nets as a way of baptising them for good catches. Or they used to tie women's used underwear to the net. Yeah, so uh, I've heard women being bad luck. And I remember some of the older older marine crew not liking it when far more women were going offshore, basically. Often the scientists, we tended to have a much higher proportion of women. But I didn't realize that that was, even within the realms of superstition, relatively recent. Weird. And, and you know, it's not a universal. Each of these little communities will have their own superstitions. Do any spring to mind, Alan? I know we've come across a few. Only the Boston's allowed to whistle. There you go. At one point, I believe somebody told me that green, green things were unlucky on the ship. I remember the ship I was on had a green deck, and I was like, ooh, that's not good, is it, if you're into that sort of stuff. Bananas are unlucky. But unlucky is something that's probably evolved just because it's, at the time, it's probably ill-advised or it's not a smart thing to do, but that's sort of morphed from, like, if you keep these on the ship, they're going to go mouldy and you're going to get loads of flies, to they're unlucky. I think that's two different things. Or this thing is more likely to give you food poisoning than any other thing you can take on an expedition. But that's kind of evolved into superstition. Yeah, like the old old religious observations, which is more about stopping you dying of food poisoning than than anything divine. Yeah, it's more strong advice than anything else. Like, you know, shellfish, nah, don't leave them out in the sun. It's not that shellfish are evil and super <laughs> and, and and bring you bad luck. Yeah. It's probably going to put you on the toilet for a couple of days. I think humans like a level of control. And I think being at sea, especially how being at sea used to be, you feel incredibly vulnerable. So anything that makes you feel like you have some control over this massive chaotic environment in which you're a blip, I think we just we become quite superstitious in that situation. Yeah. Like it's really bad luck to bring a vegan to a sausage eating competition. Well, that is if they blooming win. <laughs> it's going to put you to shame yeah uh, there was lots of weird stuff on seabirds as well isn't there there's um again, another one based in truth because it if you let an albatross land it will set up camp won't it it will defend the vessel as its own territory yeah but that's just annoying that's not superstition i think that's just irritating the the raven the ancient man thing about shooting one and all the winds go again that's samuel taylor Coleridge poem i'm pretty sure you could you could shoot an albatross and it wouldn't immediately drop the weather and it doesn't matter if it does because we don't use sailboats anymore we've got diesel electric engines so that would be probably an advantage so you should go shoot an albatross and then you just you can get 20 knots on the way home there we go okay there's a there's a lot wrapped up in seabirds anyone who's seen the film the lighthouse um you'll know that killing a seabird is a is a bad omen but if you ever want to watch the vampire from twilight punch a seagull to death then that's the film for you all right you're not a smelly guy. Is he smelly? I don't know. He kind of looks a bit smelly. It has Willem Dafoe in it. It's actually brilliant, but it's nuts. I've got no comment on whether or not Willem Dafoe smells or not, but I think the other guy, he strikes me as someone who probably smells quite a lot. Not in a good way. That's it's beautiful, but smelly. <laughs> Is he beautiful? I don't know. I didn't comment on that. I just commented on what he might smell like. <laughs>
And it's just, I don't, I'm not basing that on anything other than the fact that I feel that he would be a smelly man. Well, it probably smelly in this film. I think they both get quite smelly. Mm. I think punching a seagull to death is the act of a smelly man. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to agree with that. Yes. That feels solid, that, right? It's a smelly thing to do. Yeah, it's a really smelly thing to do with your smelly <laughs> hands. But yeah, no, I think that's solid. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And on that, that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We now have a supporters page to keep the podcast going. We are really grateful for everyone who has helped us out. We've listed lots of ways to help us from the free, like leaving a review, telling people about it, uh, to becoming a patron, to be buying merch, all lovely, lovely stuff. And so we'll show that in the show notes. There'll be wider reading and anything we talked about also in the show notes. So until next time, we'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. That's the idea. Someone's really desperate to call me at the moment. Should you pick it up? I'm not picking it up, because what if... <laughs> what if there's a voice on the other end? Well, we get the phone number. Okay, if you want me to, yeah, I can Google it. <laughs> no, they've hung up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I felt like a bit like a millennial there who's not going to answer the landline because they're absolutely fear of God of not knowing who's at the other end. But Definitely do that, yeah. No. Well, if I, if I wasn't recording a podcast, I would pick it up. But <laughs> if I wasn't recording a podcast, I wouldn't be in the office right now. This is true. So. Yeah, so you were never going to pick that up. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so right. I don't feel bad. Okay, we'll go with that.